This is a continuation of last week. This wasn't planned, but Pastor Quasey stole half of my sermon last Sunday. And actually, I thought I was going to be preaching last Sunday because he thought he was going to New York for the funeral that never needed to take place because God raised the dead person back to life. Are you getting it? But the message God was giving me last week is now to be given today, but half of it Pastor Quasey already took. He preached from Zechariah chapter 4. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. I'll give you a little more explanation about that in a minute, but let's pray. Father, give us hearts that are passionate for the word of God. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst to know you better. Teach us your ways, O God. Help us to learn about you from history. Help us to learn through the Holy Spirit as we study your word together today, O God. You have told us that all of these things that are recorded in Scripture are for our learning, for our exhortation, that our faith may grow. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth today. Bless your people. Give us listening ears and willing hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. All right. Second Chronicles chapter 36. I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background. Praise the Lord. Yes, yes, come right in. Thank you, Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 36. We're just beginning our sermon, so you're right on time. Okay, Second Chronicles 36. We're going to learn some history this morning. If you're not really up on Bible history, don't worry. We're going to help you. The children of Israel, God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched hand. You know the story, how they came through the Passover. They passed through the Red Sea. They wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness. And God finally established them in the land of Israel. They were able to build a grand and a glorious temple there under the reign of King Solomon, David's son. And for many years, they worshiped the Lord in that temple. They were the people of God. And God blessed them and God prospered them. And particularly during the reign of Solomon, vast amounts of gold and silver and wealth brought into Israel, even from other countries. But they began to walk away from the Lord who had blessed them. And God began to warn them repeatedly through the prophets, you know, to turn back to the Lord. Stop backsliding. Stop worshiping idols. Stop running after false gods. And this went on for a long period. And as we're going to see in this passage, God repeatedly would warn them. They would sort of turn back to the Lord for a little while, but then when they would go right back into their idolatry and into their rebellion and backsliding. And finally, God said, I've had it. Did you know God is very patient, but he does eventually come to a place where he says, I've had it. That's a scary thought. But that's what we're going to see here. He told Israel, I've been warning you and warning you and warning you. You're not listening, so I've had it. I'm going to allow your temple to be destroyed. Your city is going to be burned to the ground. Many of you are going to be put to death. And the rest of you are going to be taken prisoners to a foreign land. And you will be there, not for 70 days, 
but for 70 years. Okay? Picking up the story in Second Chronicles 36 from verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them. That's to the Israelites. Through his messengers, through the prophets, again and again. Say that with me. Again and again. Can anybody bear witness to that this morning? God speaks to you again and again, sometimes about the very same thing. Again and again, because he had pity on his people. Do you realize this morning, if God wasn't a merciful God, full of compassion and pity, he would have wiped us all out a long time ago. (laughs) But because of his pity, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, But they mocked God's messengers. What a strange thing. This God who loves them so much, who feels such pity and mercy on them, all they're doing is rejecting him and even rejecting the messengers that are coming and speaking on behalf of God. They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. And here's the scary part. And there was no remedy. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. God does eventually come to a place where he says, I've had it. I've had it. I pray that never happens to you. I pray it never happened to me. But it happened with his people, Israel. They came to a place where God said, I've had it. There's no more remedy for you. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small. A lot of those were solid gold. God allowed all the treasures of Israel to be stolen. All the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his official. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant. And that would be people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends that went into the fiery furnace, and and others. He carried them into exile those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to Nebuchadnezzar and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. You see, Babylon was eventually overcome by another kingdom. The land, speaking about the land of Israel, enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the what? Not 69, not 65, until the 70 years were completed. Why 70? Read the next part. In fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by one of those messengers, by Jeremiah. One of those messengers that they had mocked, one whose words they had despised and laughed at, God said, 70 years because I said it. Let me tell you something. The Word of God is powerful. When God says something, I don't care what anybody thinks about it. I don't care what anybody says about it. I don't care how many laws they pass against it. God's Word will be fulfilled. And so right to the T, 
after 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, something happens. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, I love this, it's all over the Bible, in order to fulfill the word. Do you all understand this world is not just a whole bunch of circumstances and happenstances and coincidences? Do you all understand there's a God in heaven who rules? And he's in charge of every detail. And this story really inspires me because Cyrus is not a believer. He's not a Jew. He's a heathen king. He's the Persian king. But please follow me here this morning to get a revelation of how powerful and how mighty God is in fulfilling his word and his plan. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. Can God move the heart of an unbelieving, atheist government leader? Oh, you better believe it. Proverbs says he can turn their heart like a faucet of water. He can just go like that and change a president, change a king, change a governor. He's got that kind of power. He moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a new law. He woke up one morning and says, Oh, I'm going to make a new law. I'm going to establish a new proclamation, and it's going to go throughout my whole realm, and he put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Now, please remember, this is not a God-fearing king. He's not an Israelite. He doesn't know the Lord. But what does his proclamation say? The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Wow. He's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. And remember, this isn't after 69 years. It's after 70 years that the Israelites have been in captivity in his country. He's given me all the kingdoms of the earth and appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, they've been captives now for 70 years, all of a sudden he's proclaiming, you're all free. You can all go home now. Wow. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's where 2 Chronicles ends. The whole book finishes on that line. But if you have your Bible, and you don't need to because we've got all the scriptures up here on the screen, but you'll notice the very next book in your Bible is Ezra. And it picks right up with the story. From that verse, from that very verse, let's now go to Ezra 1.1. Sound familiar? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. Now stop there for a minute. What makes this story all the more amazing, and I don't have time to take you to all the scriptures, if you really want to dig into it, you can look when you go home this week, in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, 200 years before any of this has happened, Isaiah prophesied about a man named Cyrus who would do all of this. I mean, is that amazing or what? 
This is now history for us. In those days, it was prophecy. I love it when prophecy becomes history. Some of you didn't get that. I love it when prophecy becomes history. In other words, everything that God predicted, it came to pass to fulfill the word of the Lord. This King Cyrus, I don't even know if he has a clue what's going on. I don't think he understood that even 200 years before he was born, his name was already written down in the Bible. (laughs) The God I serve, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows my future. And as far as he's concerned, my future is already a memory. I'll let that one sink in. That's a line from a song that we've been listening to in our car from Casting Crowns. My future is a memory to him. He knows the whole thing from beginning to end. We're stuck in time. God is not. He's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And my friends, you and I need to get plugged into this God and understand he has an eternal plan for our life. We're not just stuck in time being batted around like a ping pong ball by coincidences and happenstances. We need to get plugged into the purpose and the plan of God. When you understand this whole story is being orchestrated by a living God in heaven, he's using both Israelites or believers and even non-believers, even atheists. It doesn't matter. God makes every one of them move according to his plan. Now, let's go a little further. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me the kingdom of the earth and appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. We already read all that, just repeating it. But now we're going to learn some new stuff. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place... Any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with... You all must not like that stuff. You all can give me all yours. Can I hear it a little louder? Oh, thank you. Provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Temple hasn't even been built yet, and Cyrus is saying, you better give these people cows, sheep, goats, so they'll have something to offer their God when they get back to Jerusalem and get their temple built. And by the way, give them your silver and your gold too. Next verse. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. What an amazing story. Just absolutely amazing that after 70 years, maybe those exiles who were still in Babylon that has now been taken over by Persia, maybe they're thinking, Ah, the word of the Lord's not going to come to pass. We're stuck here forever. We really blew it when we were down there in Israel. God's so mad at us, he's never going to restore us. Let me tell you something. God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And God gets riled up. God is a God of wrath. He does get angry at sin. And he does judge sin. But God is always always, always interested in our redemption and in our restoration. And I believe from the very first day of that 70 years, God was longing for 
the end of the 70 years so he could move on with the next phase of his program. And now it gets really interesting because all these Israelites are going back to Jerusalem for the first time in 70 years with a mission to rebuild the temple of God. And the most powerful king on the earth at that time, Cyrus, is backing them up both with a written proclamation and with silver, gold, and all the resources they need to do it. Now, let's jump ahead a little bit in the story to Ezra chapter 3. They go back, they rebuild the altar, and they lay a whole new foundation for this restored temple in Jerusalem. And everybody is so happy. They're so excited because now the foundation has been laid and they're they're just they're so overwhelmed with joy because they know that God is with them he's not given up on them and they're moving forward again in the program of God and I'll just read a couple of verses here in Ezra chapter 3 it says in verse 7 they gave money to the masons and carpenters gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, and let me just stop here for a minute because these are two names we're going to hear over and over and over in this story. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. He's been established as the governor of of the people when they go back to Judah. And Jeshua, or sometimes it's written as Joshua, not the same Joshua that the book is named after, he's the high priest. So keep those names in mind. We're going to see them a lot. Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And all these other people are going back to begin the work. Now skip down to verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, The priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. This was a day of great celebration. They finally got a foundation for their new temple. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now hold, hold it right there for a minute. This restored temple is long gone now. It's not there in Israel. There is a far greater temple that God is concerned with, and that's the church of the living God. That is the eternal temple where God will dwell. The church. You and I are his temple. God is building us together to be an eternal habitation, the Bible says. And we have reason to shout and to celebrate this morning because the foundation has already been laid. Do you realize that? Please put up 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Same number, 311. Read it out loud with me. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. They shouted and banged their cymbals and their tambourines just because they got some stones laid into the ground. We have the real foundation. We have a foundation that we can build upon 
He's called the rock of my salvation. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it because I build it on this rock. He is the rock. He is the foundation. Now, back to Ezra. They're off to a good start. They got an altar now. They got a foundation. I'm sure many of them figured, wow, the end is near. We can finish this thing in a year or two and we'll have our temple all set to go. Not quite. In my Bible, chapter 4 has this heading, opposition to the rebuilding. How many of you know when you start moving in the plan and purpose of God, you didn't ask for trouble, but you run into it? Oh, I don't have any friends here. I guess none of you have any troubles. Hands up if you don't have any troubles. For the record, no hands are up. (laughs) As soon as word got around that these Jews had come back and they were rebuilding their temple, literally all hell broke loose. All kinds of enemies came from the east, the west, the north, and the south to try to stop them from building. Please follow this story today. I'm not just giving you a history lesson. There is a spiritual lesson here that we need to learn. Ezra 4, verse 1. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord. They heard that. I don't know how, but the demons and the devils hear when you and I are getting serious about God. They see when you mean business with God. And you may think they're all going to run away and hide. Oh man, I better not mess with Darius anymore. He's serious about the Lord. No, just the opposite. They plot and they plan. When they heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, what happens? They ran away? Uh Uh-oh. They came. They came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families, and they said, now listen to this. Let us help you build. Because like you, we seek your God. Now what would most of us have said at that point? Hallelujah. Praise God. Come on, brothers. Help us out here. This is an answer to prayer. Let us help you. Now, do you remember verse 1 clearly identified these as enemies? Enemies are not interested in helping you. (laughs) Enemies have not come to help the Israelites. But that's what they're saying. Let us help you build because like you, we seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. What are they doing? They are lying. Thank you, brother. They are liars. What is the devil an expert at? Lying. He's the father of lies. First attack that comes against them is an attack of deception. The enemy tries to disguise himself so that he can infiltrate and then divide and conquer. But thank God they had discernment. And thank God we have the Holy Spirit on our side who will give us discernment. He will open our eyes. He will sound an alarm when the enemy comes disguised in sheep's clothing, but he's really a wolf. Because look at the next verse. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua... And the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, I love this, you have no part. You have no part with us 
in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. We don't need any help from the devil. We don't need any help from our enemies. We need help from the God of heaven. And that's what they realize. We got God on our side and we got King Cyrus on our side. That's all we need. And basically they told those guys, get lost. So they must have said, wow, we're not going to be able to defeat these Israelites. We might as well just all go home, right? Next verse. Then the peoples around them set out to... Anybody ever heard that word? To? It never happens here, right? Nobody here ever gets discouraged. We're just always upbeat. I mean, we just wake up every morning like the ever-ready battery bunny. Whoo, I'm ready to go. Praise the Lord. I'm on fire. I'm on top of the world. I'm more than a conqueror. Well, you're living in Disneyland because that ain't real life. And this is the second major level of attack that the enemy brought against them and he brings it against you and me when we start to get serious about the Lord. They came to discourage them and then here comes level three to make them afraid. Deception then discouragement, and then fear. Three classics. That's why the Bible tells us in Second Corinthians, we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. He's only got a limited number of tools. He uses the same old junk. He just repackages it and re-gifts it every year. Same old stuff, discouragement, fear, deception. And you may think, well, they're wasting their time. These Israelites, man, they know their God. They're so fired up now. Nothing is going to stop them. Hmm. Not so fast. They hired counselors to work against them and to... Now, I know none of you here ever get frustrated, right? Everything always goes smoothly. You, you never have that feeling that something's working against me here. Something's trying to frustrate me. Well... They hired counselors to do that, to frustrate their plans, not for a day or two. What does it say? During the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and right down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Wow, very interesting. I'm not going to read all of this, but there's a lengthy section in the following verses in in Ezra chapter 4, how they actually wrote letters and tried to bring all kinds of political attacks against these people and and say, these people are are building this city in rebellion. They're not going to pay taxes anymore. These are troublemakers. You better stop them now while you have a chance. And if you drop down to verse 23 of Ezra 4, after this grand and glorious beginning with Cyrus, a heathen king, proclaiming it's time for them to go back, rebuild the temple. He gives them all the resources they need. They get the foundation laid and they're all praising God and clapping and cheering. And it seems like they've overcome some of these tricks and attacks of the enemies. It's too much for them. As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Next verse. Thus 
The work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, you've got to do a little bit of homework. I'm not going to do this for you. But if you really search all these numbers and dates, you know, second year of, of Darius's reign, the first year of Cyrus and all that, if you want to trust me, you can, but I would recommend you search it for yourself. The work ceased for a minimum, a bare minimum of 10 years, depending on how you calculate the dates, it could be as long as 16. In other words, for a long time, they got discouraged, they quit, and they threw in the towel. I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise their hands, but does that sound familiar? I don't want to shock you this morning, but I've been a minister for 38 years. And many, many times I have felt like quitting. Many times I felt I'm not going to make it another day. I'm just going to throw the towel in. Guess what? I'm still here. Not by my might, not by my power, but because there's a living God who is going to see it through to the end. But sometimes we have these long lapses in our Christian walk where we basically quit. We give up. The work ceases. 10, maybe 15, 16 years. Everything comes to a halt. This is after they've been waiting 70 years to go back. Now the enemy seems to have triumphed. He seems to have succeeded. Finished. No more temple, no more work going on. But now I begin my sermon. Because in the very next verse, Ezra 5.1, this introduces us to two key characters in the story. Now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Remember this guy, the governor? Then Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest, they did what? They set to what? They set to work after, let's just keep it simple, let's say 10 years. After 10 years of doing nothing, all of a sudden, these two dudes, Haggai and Zerubbabel, start prophesying, and everybody's back to work. They set to work. No, no, that's a fast They set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, most of your Bibles... You don't need to do this now, but in the front, it breaks down the Bible into different sections. And they have the major prophets, and then they have the minor prophet. It's an arbitrary way of separating the two books of prophets based mainly on the length. The major prophets, like Isaiah, his book is 66 chapters. Jeremiah, 48 chapters. Ezekiel, 48 chapters. I'm sorry, Jeremiah, I think is 52. Got it mixed up with Ezekiel. These are all big, long books, so they're called major prophets. Poor Haggai and poor Zechariah, because theirs are only two chapters and 14 chapters, they're relegated to the minor prophet category. Now, I would only have one question. If you were Zerubbabel or Jeshua, or any of these other exiles, are these minor prophets or major prophets? (laughs) They're major. They had a major, major impact on the whole history of Israel. Remember, ten long years have passed, and they've quit. 
they've given up until God raises up these two men of God and anoints them and puts a word in their mouth. And you can check. Well, let's do it. Go to Haggai 1.1. And it'll tell you when he started prophesying. There it is. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. We just read in Ezra that the work had ceased until that second year of Darius. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, to whom? There's the name again. Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. Now go to Zechariah 1.1. Zechariah comes on the scene a couple months later. But they're both contemporaries, and they're both very much a part of this revival that was necessary before they could finish rebuilding the temple. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Okay? That's just a little bit of information for you. Now, back to Ezra. Now they got prophets prophesying. Surely there's not going to be any more trouble or opposition, right? From verse 3 all the way down to verse 17 in chapter 5, we read about more trouble, more opposition. Now, these guys are coming around and they're asking, who authorized you to rebuild this temple? Do you have a license to do that? Let me see your permit and to restore this structure. Next verse. They also asked, what are the names of the men constructing this building? Now, why do they want their names? Are they going to do a nice little piece in the, in the Persian Post newspaper? No, I don't think so. They want to get these guys. What are the names of the men behind all this? And you can read the rest of the chapter. These guys were troublemakers. And they sent off letters to the king saying, These guys are at it again. They're rebellious. They're causing trouble. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But, Thank God for King Darius. Yes, he's right here. He's still alive. Isn't that amazing? Maybe you'll have a better appreciation for the name God gave you after this story. Ezra chapter 6. King Darius has now gotten all these letters accusing the Jews, saying, you better shut these guys down. And the Jews have told Darius, if you'll check the records, you're going to find in there somewhere that Cyrus, your predecessor, gave a proclamation saying we should come back here and rebuild this city. So Darius issues an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon to see if what the Jews are saying is true. A scroll was found in the citadel of whatever, and whatever, and this was written on it. A memorandum. In the first year, does that sound familiar? First year of King Cyrus the king issued a decree. Who told him to issue that that decree? The living God. It's still recorded. They still have a record of it. He issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices. Let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide. And it goes on and on and on. Drop down to verse 6. Now then... And he's addressing these enemies that are trying to stir up trouble. Now then, Tatanai, governor of trans-Euphrates, and 
I don't, I don't know who gives names like this to their kids. But anyway, Shethar, Bozanai, and their fellow officials of that province stay away from there. That's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> the king is telling these guys, get lost. Leave those people alone. Get out of there. Next. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Keep going. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury. Is God good or what? Silver and the gold is mine, says the Lord. Pay these guys. Don't get in their way. Give them whatever they need so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed. Young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, as requested by the priests, must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Next. Furthermore, I decree that if any 